so rich and free. Amen to that. It is a time when we think in a special way of our thanksgiving to God. And there is nothing that we could thank Him more for than for salvation, for redemption. And I appreciate what Brother David said about that central verse in the Bible. And truly that is, that is the center of the gospel. The mercy and grace uh, that God has extended to each one of us. No, we truly are not worthy of salvation. We are not worthy to be sons and daughters of Jesus Christ. We're not worthy to be a child of the King. uh, But because of the blood of Jesus, because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, we can now be a part of the family of God that is only through God's mercy and grace. It is a theme that runs rich through all of the Bible. Well, I truly uh, welcome each of you here this morning. A number of you visiting with us, God's blessing upon you as you visit with our congregation today and with our people over the weekend. It's so good to be in the house of God and to study God's Word together, and I always look forward to these opportunities. I trust you do the same. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto Him, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your minds, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You understand this morning, dear people, that your ability to discern God's will for your life, your ability to understand what God wants from you, is directly connected to your surrender to Him, to your willingness to put your all on the altar. And I've, I've talked to young people before that, that have said, you know, I'm struggling to find God's will for my life in this way. And I wonder what God wants me to do in this. And I I don't know what God has in store for me. I'm wondering about this. And my thought to them is, well, are you truly surrendering yourself to God in the things that you do know? (laughs) The things that are made obvious in His Word. What is your level of commitment to those? You see, we can't expect to have a greater revelation of God's will in the unknown if we're not being committed in the things that we do know. The things that are revealed in His Word. This morning we want to speak specifically about worship and worship that glorifies God. And I asked you this morning, what is worship? We talk a lot about worship. It's a word that we use quite a bit, especially in our church settings. Worship. But what is worship? And I would like to say that worship is not really what we so often think it is. Uh, Worship is not simply preaching or teaching 
or singing or praying. Now, I certainly believe that those things must be done in the spirit of worship. And I believe that those things can be aids to stimulate our worship. But in and of themselves, those good things are not simply worship. You know, worship is not merely an activity or an event. Or it's not merely the second hour in our Sunday service. As if the hour we just came through was not worshipful. You know, sometimes we talk about we have the Sunday school hour and we have the worship hour, okay? Worship is more than that. Worship is bigger than that. Worship is not just really a place that we go or a thing that we do. But dear people, worship is a whole life response to the mercies of God. It's acknowledging His worthy position as Lord of our lives and then daily surrendering in obedience to His will. Lord, what will you have me to do? You are my master. You call the shots in my life. What would you have me to do? That is worship. A whole life response to the mercies of God. And so that's why the Apostle Paul writes there, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Why? Well, prefacing that is the whole book of Romans almost, not quite, where where the Apostle Paul speaks about the tremendous gift of salvation, the plan of salvation, how that God made that available not only to His chosen people, the Jews, but then to the Gentiles. We can be grafted in and we can experience that great gift of salvation. And Paul is just completely overwhelmed with all of this as he keeps writing. And he just can't believe this. And he bursts into words when he says the last part of chapter 11, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever, amen. And then he says... (laughs) On that basis, you consider what God has done for you. You consider His mercy and grace. I urge you, brothers and sisters, I beg you, in response to that, give everything to God as a living sacrifice. And so, you know, worship is saying, thank you, Lord. Thank you, thank you for all you've done for me. Thank you for your mercy and grace. Thank you for Calvary and what that means to me today personally. And no, I'm not worthy of that. I don't deserve that. But because of what you've done for me, Heavenly Father, I want to give you all of me. I want to give you my life. I want to give you my body, my goals, my desires, all those aspirations, that bucket list. I'm turning that over to you. I want to say no to the flesh, and I want to walk in that way. And I want you to be my Lord and Master. I want to consecrate my life daily to you. You know what? The fact is, true biblical worship is not merely saying that, dear people. It's doing that. It's living that. You see, worship is a lot about revelation and response. You know, we can learn about God, and we can talk about the things that we've learned. But until we take that knowledge 
and take that talk and translate it into everyday living, we are not truly worshiping. We are not truly worshiping. And on that foundation, I invite you to our text this morning, and that is Psalm 50. Worship that glorifies God. What is God looking for in your life this morning? What kind of worship pleases the Father? Do we know? Does God's Word say anything about that? (laughs) It certainly does. And so this morning, we are looking at the Word of God. In fact, we will be confronted (laughs) with the Word of God. Are you ready? How will you this morning respond to the Word of God? In fact, the way you respond to the Word of God this morning is the ultimate criteria of your spirituality. And so, God is speaking to us this morning. God will probably put His finger on some sensitive areas in our lives. What will we do with that? How will we respond to that? It says a lot about who we are and where we're at in our Christian journey. Here in Psalm 50, we are stepping into a courtroom scene as sorts. There is a judge and there are two offenders. Their names are formalist and hypocrite. Now, this judge is going to address some problems. But along with addressing the problems, he's then going to give solutions. He's going to give remedies here for the problems. And this judge will then conclude the court hearing by declaring the standard for pleasing him. And this morning, as children of God, we want to know what pleases the judge. We want to know what pleases the judge. And so as means of outline, we have the holy judge. And then we have three kinds of worship. We have heartless worship. We have hypocritical worship. And we have honest worship. Heartless worship, hypocritical worship, and honest worship. Let's think for a moment here about this holy judge. Verses 1 through 6 of Psalm 50. The mighty God, even the Lord, has spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun unto the going down thereof. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has shined. Our God shall come and shall not keep silence. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very tempestuous round about him. He shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth that he may judge his people. And this is what he says. Gather my saints together unto me, those that have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens shall declare his righteousness, for God is judge himself. Selah. This holy judge. 
is calling. Who is this judge, anyway? Who is this judge? You know, in our court system today, they often refer to the judge as the honorable judge. The honorable Joel Cunningham, or something, (laughs) maybe you know a local judge. This judge, dear people, truly is an honorable judge. He is the one and only honorable judge. He is the holy judge. And in fact, he is declared here as being the mighty God. Verse 1. He is declared as being the Lord. Verse 1. Throughout this passage, he's declared as being God himself. Verses 4 and 6, he is referred to as the judge. Verse 4, he may judge his people. Verse 6, he is judge himself. Verse 14, he is referred to as the most high. This is the judge, the holy judge that the passage is talking about this morning. This is the one who is overseeing this courtroom scene this morning. Who is this judge? Let me tell you this morning that knowing who the judge is is not only a sobering thing for us, but it ought to be very comforting. Certainly it is a sobering thing. For those who are not living as they ought. For those who are not living in the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. A very sobering thing. And we'll notice that in a few moments. But it's also, dear people, a very comforting thing when we know who the judge is. The judge is our Heavenly Father. He is the Mighty God. He is the Lord. He is the Most High One. For God is judge Himself, verse 6. Selah. In other words, stop for a moment and ponder that. Think about that. That God needs no one to help Him. God is the judge. He is the prosecutor. He is the jury. He handles it all Himself. And this holy judge knows everything every detail about everyone who is on trial. I say, very sobering and yet comforting for those of us who are believers. There is nothing that is past Him. Nothing that He slips up on. Nothing that He hasn't known or knows. But He has seen it all. Not only is this judge a judge of righteous judgment, but a part of the comforting thing is is that he is a judge of mercy. In fact, as we go through this, this passage, you see that he is continually calling all people to true spiritual worship. He is still calling today this Holy One. He is calling all of us to to live lives of true spiritual worship, of surrender to Him. Verse 2, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God hath shined. 
Brother Lester mentioned about that a bit this morning. Beautiful for situations, the joy of the horde, Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. Here we have a similar picture where Zion being that perfection of beauty. God has shined out of that. Zion being uh, uh, the place where God dwelled, as it were, in the Old Testament picture. That is where God shined out of. God dwelt there. There in the temple. The place where, where people went to make things right. Where they sacrificed. Where they were forgiven. Where the priest did his duties. And blood was shed. And it was a place of, of beauty. A place of redemption. A place where peace was restored. It was the dwelling place of God. And yet the writer here makes it clear that this holy judge places a far exceeding importance on the beauty of holiness. <laughs> An inner beauty. Oh yes, as beautiful as Zion was, as beautiful as it is, that place where God dwells, as beautiful as the temple was, yet there is a far exceeding beauty of holiness. That is what God is looking for. That is what this holy judge is looking for in each of us today. And the call is to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Worship Him from a heart that has been redeemed. From a heart that has been changed. Worship Him from the inside out. You see, true spiritual worship is most breathtaking to the worshiper and it is most beautiful to God when it flows from a heart that is wholly surrendered to Him. Most breathtaking and most beautiful. The Holy Judge. Let's move on now and, and look at this first category of people. I'm calling this heartless worship. Starting at verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, and I will testify against thee. I am God, even thy God. I will not reprove thee for thy sacrifices or thy burnt offerings to have been continually before me. I will take no bullock out of thy house, nor he goats out of thy folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountain, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee. For the world is mine, and the fullness thereof. Will I eat the flesh of bulls, or drink the blood of goats? Offer unto God thanksgiving, and pay thy vows unto the Most High God. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. I find it interesting that the holy judge begins by addressing his own people. Verse 7. Hear, O my people. O Israel, I am God, even thy God. 
he begins by addressing his own people. And my mind went to a passage in 1 Peter chapter 4 that gives a similar thrust. Verses 17 and 18, For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Sobering question. But he begins with his own people, addressing them. And the offender here is the formalist. For them, worship is a ritual that must be followed. Something I have to do. It's a religion. It's an act. It's not a relationship. It's not a living, vibrant relationship with the Heavenly Father, but it's, it's a re, it's. It's a religion. It's something that I must do. It's works. It's motions. Uh, This person is going through the motions of worship out of habit, not from the heart, you see. Uh, Yeah, they're doing all the right things. Uh, They're saying the right words. They're wearing the right clothes. But it's not real with them. It's not flowing out of a changed heart. It's not flowing out of wholehearted surrender. It's flowing out of simply what I need to do to look right in the eyes of God and others. There is no heart, true heart, in it. Notice what verse 8 says. I will not reprove thee, says the holy judge, for thy sacrifices or thy burnt offerings to have been continually before me. I find that interesting. So these people are going through the motions. They're doing their sacrifices. They're performing all of these things that they were said to do. And the holy judge comes and says, that's not the problem. I'm not admonishing you. I'm not rebuking you for what you're doing. He says, I'm rebuking you because what you're doing is heartless. What you're doing is not from the heart. There is no authenticity in the action. And so their acts of worship were simply that. They were empty acts of worship. They were not the outflowing of a vibrant relationship with God. You see, the sacrifices were certainly commanded. And they were very important. We're not downplaying that at all. We're not saying that the doing is not important. God said, that's not what I have against you. They were commanded. They were important. But those things did no good for the worshipers if they were not flowing out of a life of true faith and a desire to please Him. In fact, look what David writes about this here in Psalm 51. Psalm 51, his response after his sin with Bathsheba and his acknowledgement of that sin, his confession to God. Verse 6, he says, Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts. And in the hidden part, thou shalt make me to know wisdom. 
You see, David realized here that it's not in sacrifices. It's not in all of the doing. But it's in an obedient heart. That's where true worship is. Obedience in the heart. In verse 16 of Psalm 51, For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. You see? When the heart is made right... Then the doing, the outward expression of that is pleasing to God. And I want you to understand that, dear people. When the heart is right, then he delights in those outward acts of worship. But if the heart is not in tune with God, then those outward acts of worship will be detestable to him, no matter how beautiful they may appear. No matter how you glamorize all of that. If it's coming from a heart that is not surrendered, God says, I don't want anything of it. I don't delight in that. Heartless worship. Notice in Psalm 50, verses 14 and 15, notice God's remedy for heartless worship. Offer unto God thanksgiving. And pay thy vows unto the Most High God, the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. He lists three things there. I call this the remedy for heartless worship. Offer thanksgiving unto God. Now, there was offerings being made. He notes that. There are sacrifices. There are offerings that are being made. But they were not being done out of a heart that honors God. He says, offer thanksgiving unto God. You see, a true heart expression from one who knows what it means to be redeemed. That's what that is. A sacrifice of gratitude to God. Acknowledging the tremendous mercy and grace that God has poured out. Realizing that you are not a self-made person. Realizing that it is only by God's grace that you are who you are. That you have what you have. It is because of God. No, you have not pulled yourself up by your own bootstraps, but it is because of God. Offer unto God thanksgiving. I say it's a remedy for heartless worship. Realizing who it is. Who it is that gives you what you have. That enables you to do what you do. It's a new perspective. It's taking the perspective off of yourself and off of all you can do to please God and it's placing it on the Lord Jesus Christ and flowing out of that 
comes a heart of, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I don't deserve that, but I live my life for you because of you. Secondly, he says, pay thy vows unto the Most High, or fulfill the vows that you have made to God, a remedy for heartless worship. Remember the covenant that you have made. That harkens back to verse 5. Gather my saints together unto me, those that have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Uh, Dear people, as a believer, that's you. You have made a covenant with God when you've surrendered your heart and life to Him. And He's saying now, a way to remedy that heartless worship is to remember the vows you have made to God and fulfill that. Follow through with that. Truly, you made vows to God when you gave your heart to Him. You made vows to God when you were baptized. What are you doing about that? Are you fulfilling those vows? Are you living honestly as you consider the vows you have made? You see, heartless worship uh, is really about forgetfulness. You're forgetting the vows you made. And you're forgetting God, (laughs) the one you made the vows to. In fact, look here at verse 22. In conclusion, we read, Now consider this, ye that forget God. What do you mean forget God? Yes, forget God. When our worship becomes stale, When our worship becomes self-centered, we are forgetting God. We are forgetting that gift of grace. We are forgetting what He has done for us. And we are forgetting the vows that we have made to Him. Fulfill your vows. And then thirdly, another remedy for heartless worship is call upon me in the day of trouble. You know, who you call upon when you're in trouble, what you run to when you're in trouble says a lot about where your heart is. It certainly does. Who do you run to? What do you go to when you're in a tight spot? Maybe you eventually end up going to God, but where you run to first says a lot about who you are and about your perspective on life. Call upon me, he says, in the day of trouble. And what is the promise? I will deliver you, and you will glorify me. (laughs) I say it's a remedy for heartless worship. Let's move into the next set of verses, and I'm calling this hypocritical worship. Starting at verse 16. But unto the wicked God saith, What hast thou to do to declare my statutes? Or that thou shouldest take my covenant in thy mouth? Or he's really saying, What right do you have to recite my laws? What right do you have to speak about this covenant? Verse 17, Seeing thou hatest instruction, and castest my words behind thee, you have nothing for my words. 
You don't live according to my words. So why are you reciting my law? Why do you act like that? Verse 18, when thou sawest a thief, then thou consentest with him and hast been partaker with adulterers. Thou givest thy mouth to evil and thy tongue framest deceit. Thou sittest and speakest against thy brother. Thou slanderest thine own mother's son. These things hast thou done, and I kept silence. This is the holy judge speaking. These things hast thou done, and I kept silence. Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such an one as thyself. But I will reprove thee, and set them in order before thine eyes. Hypocritical worship. And here the offender is the hypocrite. Uh, This is a group of people not considered to be God's people. In fact, they are labeled, verse 16, as the wicked. But unto the wicked, God saith these things. Notice verse 16. Notice the hypocrisy. The hypocrisy, what they're saying. Hypocrisy is what's being said. What hast thou do to declare my statutes? That thou shouldest take my covenant in thy mouth. Has to do with speaking. Hypocrisy. Why are you speaking this way? But look at the reality in verses 17 through 20. You see, we can say a lot of things. We can frame things to look right. We can put ourselves in a good position by what we say. But that is not reality. Reality is how we live. Hypocrisy and reality. Now, we wouldn't consider ourselves to be the wicked. We wouldn't consider ourselves to be, yeah, we're sinners. No, we wouldn't say that, would we? But consider this, God makes it clear that a person's truest testimony is revealed not in what they say, but in how they live their life. That is a person's truest testimony. And so, some things for us to ponder, how this plays out in practical matters perhaps. You know, how do these people treat their spouse? How do they treat their children? What do they do? Or how do they behave when they are all alone? When no one is watching? Oh, what percentage of their reading material is God's Word? What are they feasting on? What rules their life, their mind? How do they conduct their businesses? What is their reputation in their church, in their community? How open and transparent are they to their church brotherhood? You see, it is these kind of things that speak the loudest and the clearest about who we are and what we're about. Not so much what we just simply say. It's a sobering thought. It's a sobering thought. Once again, I... I say we would not call ourselves wicked. We would not tend to put ourselves in that category. But I want us to ponder 
How do we live our lives? How do we live our lives? Verse 21, notice God's righteous judgment. And I want to say that righteous judgment is a beautiful picture of mercy and truth. Righteous judgment is a beautiful balance between mercy and truth. In fact, I often refer to mercy and truth as the perfect couple. (laughs) The perfect couple. Perhaps that would make a good wedding sermon sometimes. Mercy and truth. In relationships, mercy and truth. In leadership, mercy and truth. And here we see the holy judge relates to the offenders with mercy and truth. That is righteous judgment. One is not at the expense of the other. You don't have to give up the one in order to have the other. In fact, they go hand in hand. The two of them together make for good, righteous judgment. Would to God that we could do better in this, in our relationships, in our leadership. Verse 21, these things hast thou done. That's truth. (laughs) These things hast thou done. Ouch. That hurts a little bit, does it? And I kept silence. Is that negligence? Did God not notice? No. Once again, He is the holy judge. He sees everything. He knows all the details about everyone on trial. You have done these things. And I kept silence. Dear people, that's mercy. That's mercy. Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such in one as thyself. No, no. But I will reprove thee. I will reprove thee. That's truth. And I will set them in order before thine eyes. Righteous judgment. It's a beautiful balance of mercy and truth. You see, to the wicked, they say, Oh, God's not doing anything about it. I can live this way. I don't see God doing anything about it. I'm getting by with it. He must not notice. Or or maybe He agrees with me. Maybe I'm right after all. And God says, no. I will rebuke you. And I will set things in order before thine eyes. A very sobering picture. Something that should cause us to stop and ponder our personal lives and, and our place with God and others. Let's end this morning on the positive note, and that is honest worship. Honest worship, verses 22 and 23. Now consider this, ye that forget God, lest I tear you in pieces, and there be none to deliver. Wow. Harken back to verse 15, where the call is to call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you. Okay? Call upon me. Remember me. And I will deliver you. But here is the call. Those who forget me. 
You'll be torn to pieces. There is judgment. And I will not be there to deliver you. Verse 23. Whoso offereth praise glorifieth me. And to whom that ordereth his conversation aright will I show the salvation of God. As I think of these verses here, my mind goes back to the Concordia Choir. I grew up listening to the Concordia Choir. We listened to it quite a bit in our home, a choir from Moorhead, Minnesota. And one of the beautiful pieces that they sang back in the day were two settings here from Psalm 50, maybe three, but settings from Psalm 50, from these verses specifically, 14 and 15 and 23. And and the song ends with a climax of, whoso glorifieth me, whoso offereth praise glorifieth me. It's one of those pieces that, that brings chills to your body, as it were. It's a beautiful rendition and sort of captures the beauty of that and what God is looking for in his worshipers. What is God looking for? What kind of worship brings him glory? He's looking for worship that is pure. He's looking for worship that is honest. He's looking for worship that is true. He's looking for worship that flows from a heart of surrender, a heart of obedience. In fact, the word here, praise, it is the same Greek word as the word thanksgiving in verse 14, ta-da, and it literally means to extend the hand, very similar to what Brother Lester was saying uh, this morning in a very similar word. But praise, thanksgiving, to extend the hand. In other words, when you are bringing that kind of worship to God, you are realizing that there is something greater, there is something higher than yourself. That you need help. That you can't do it on your own. You are looking to a greater power. You see, that takes humility. That takes selflessness to come to that position. Whoso offereth praise glorifies me. Offer thanksgiving unto God. There is a direct connection in the scripture in that biblical term between the heart and the hands. And I maybe have said it before, but I'll say it again. If the spirit ever causes you to connect your heart to your hands by all means, do it. You, you won't make me feel bad. In, in fact, it is a biblical posture of worship. Thank you, Lord. Praise your name, Jesus. The two ought to go together. I understand that all things should be done decently and in order. I understand that. But it is truly a biblical form of worship. Honoring God. Acknowledging that there is someone that stands above you that you are to live in surrender to. You are who you are. You have what you have because of this great God and you're thankful. Your life is lived with thankfulness because of it. I would like to close this morning by just noting several 
little sets of verses. As we think about honest worship, what kind of worship is God looking for in our lives? One verse in Hosea 6, verse 6. For I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. The knowledge of God, an intimacy with God, a relationship with God, more than just simply empty acts. That's what God is looking for. Turn to Micah 6. Micah chapter 6. Several verses here. A very similar thrust. Micah 6 and verse 6. I'm sorry, yeah, that's correct. Micah 6 and verse 6. Similar to Hosea. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings? With calves of a year old? That sounds like the reasonable thing to do to God, right? For God? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Wow! What a display of worship, right? One would think so. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? Wow, we're getting more personal here. A greater sacrifice. Something more I can give of myself. The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Is that what I should give? Is that what God is pleased with? What is God looking for? Verse 8. He hath shown thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee? but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. This thing of mercy keeps coming up. Mercy. God is looking for mercy. I believe Brother Lester mentioned something similar to that again this morning. Mercy understood. Mercy received. Mercy extended. Mercy. A heart that is is flowing with mercy. You understand what God has given you. But then you extend that in the way you live your life to those around you. That's proof that God is real with you. That there's relationship there. You see, that's not natural. It takes supernatural power. It takes the Holy Spirit for that to happen within us. It's proof that your worship is authentic. Turn to John chapter 4 yet. Just a few verses here. As Jesus is... Speaking to the woman at the well. And he makes it clear that the externals of worship are not the salvation. The externals are not the salvation. But they flow out of a heart that has been redeemed. They flow out of a relationship with God. He says that worship is really not about where, but it's about how. How you worship God. Verse 20 of John 4. This is the woman speaking. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father, Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, 
And now is when the true worshipers, remember that, the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Does it need to be more clear? Jesus Himself speaking, this is what I'm looking for in true worshipers today. I'm looking for those who worship me inside and in reality. Okay? From the inside out. I'm looking for those who have lived and are living their lives in surrender to me. A heart that is living in surrender to me. A daily submission to the will of God. And flowing out of that comes a life. He that orders his life aright. That is the one who will experience the salvation of God. That's what the psalmist writes. He who lives his life righteously will experience God's salvation It is a true worship experience that begins with a changed heart and flows into every aspect of everyday life. God is looking for those kind of worshipers today. Be one of those through the power of God and the aid of His Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, You have blessed us richly with another opportunity to dig into Your Word and and seek Your face this morning. And we bless You for that, Father. We know that we are living in the day of grace when you are continually calling men and women to true spiritual worship, to accept that free gift of salvation. Oh, Father, I pray that we would be among those this morning. Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts and lives. Put your finger on areas that are standing outside of your will for our lives. Help us to see that. Open our eyes to that. Help us to acknowledge that. Help us to confess. And help us to walk in newness of life through the power of your Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that we would truly be worshipers of God in heart and life. I pray that the way we live our lives would be a wholehearted response to your mercy. Oh, Father, we don't stand worthy of that. We don't deserve that because of Jesus, though, we experience it and we give you glory. May our lives be lived in praise to you. In Christ's name, amen. We'll call for a closing song.